0: From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Michael Krasny. The coronavirus is rapidly widening the gap between rich and poor around the world, and author and journalist Fareed Zakaria
1: is sounding the alarm. Early indications suggest the virus is ushering in the greatest rise in economic inequality in decades, both globally and within the United States.
0: But the CNN host offers some solutions in his new book, Ten Lessons for a Post-Pandemic World. And Coming up on Forum, he'll join us to talk about the book, next week's election, and the latest international news. Join us after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. While it may seem too early to draw conclusions from a global crisis still in process, journalist Fareed Zakaria is seizing the moment. In his latest book, Ten Lessons for a Post-Pandemic World, the CNN host outlines how the coronavirus pandemic will have lasting impacts that could take years to unfold. He examines the prospective political, social, technological, and economic consequences of actions governments are taking now and on his weekly show, Fareed Zakaria, GPS, For CNN Worldwide, Zakaria has focused on international and domestic affairs for 12 years running. He also writes columns for The Washington Post and serves as a contributing editor for The Atlantic. And he joins us to discuss his new book, as well as the latest international and national news. And welcome back to Forum, Fareed. Good to have you.
1: Thanks, Michael. Pleasure to be back.
0: Yeah, and I'm remembering the last time we were together in New York in a very different world. We were trying to cover not only international and local news, but... uh, now we've got to talk about your book, too, which, by the way, congratulations on. There's much in here for people to really think about. It certainly uh, captivated me over the weekend. I thought we'd begin, though, by talking about an editorial you did for The Washington Post, which you also did on your TV show, where you kind of doubled down, to use your language, certain in the last election that Trump would lose and feel pretty much this time you're going with that again.
1: <laughs> yeah, I maybe this may be uh, you know incredibly foolish, but I, I've o- often felt that people like me who try to help the public understand what's going on, you know, we owe it to to our viewers and our listeners and our readers to give them our best judgment and to not you know caveat it a hundred million ways. And so, look, I, I I I hope Donald Trump loses, but I also believe and expect that he will. And I have a slightly alternative narrative to the one that has developed over the last four years. My narrative is that Donald Trump has always been very unpopular. A majority of the American people have always disapproved of him, disapproved of him as a person, disapproved of him as a president. He has the lowest approval ratings of any president in recorded history. That is going back all the way to Harry Truman in the 1940s. He has never gotten a majority of the public to support him for even one week during his presidency. Um, He won in 2016 because he happened to run against the second most unpopular candidate in modern American history. Now, rightly or wrongly, uh, that, that that is not my normative description of Hillary Clinton. I'm saying statistically, as a fact, she happened to be the second most unpopular candidate, very high negatives. And because of that, because of the Electoral College, because of 70,000 votes in three states, he won, you know, totally legitimate win, but it does not pre- suggest deep support. And it has only gotten worse after that. So my my uh, presumption is that Biden will, will win comfortably. Now, I got to say, uh, this is partly because this is what I want to believe about America. I want to believe that it's not a country that uh, that succumbs to these kind of naked appeals to, uh, to race and resentment and, you know, decline and, and uh, talking about others, uh, you know, whether they look different, whether they're different religion in the, in the kind of nasty and vengeful way that Trump does. So there's an element here where I'm I'm seeing the America I want to see. But you know what? I'd rather go down fighting. I'd rather see the America I want to see because I know it's there. And I want to believe in it.
0: Well, that was one I was struck particularly by in the article. I mean, you often don't write uh, very infrequently, write about yourself. And you describe yourself as a young brown skinned Muslim coming here from India and feeling welcome and still feeling that and feeling that this is the better side of America. You want this witty, uh, excuse me, this uh, unified and pluralistic America as opposed to this divided America to be our America.
1: Yeah, you're exactly right, Michael, about the I'm very reluctant to write about myself um particularly in those kind of personal terms i'm not one i gotta be honest for identity politics you know i write i really try to give you know my my viewers and and readers the best argument i can i want them to to be persuaded by what i'm saying not because not because of who i am but because of what i'm saying um but this you know the it seemed relevant this this time around to point out that you know I was somebody who came here uh, you know with a brown skin and a funny name and no money and no contacts and and I felt that this country was so amazing and so welcoming and and I've seen that country for 38 years now that I've been in America so it's not you know momentary <laughs> illusion uh, and and I want to you know I want to uh, I want to believe in it but it's more than you know just a naive, Uh, wish. It's that I I know there is that big, large, generous, uh, open-hearted America out there. And I want to, in a sense, uh, support it, you know, put my thumb on that side of the scale.
0: Well, let me talk with you about this America that we are presently facing, which has been ravaged by the pandemic. And one of the things I was I was struck by many things in your book, and as I said, I want to actually touch on a number of international hotspots with you, too, if we can, in the course of this hour. And I know listeners will want the opportunity to talk with you and raise questions with you. But you talk early on in your book about uh, some of the major things that have occurred over recent time, 9 11 and the crash uh, and the pandemic, and they are all, as you describe them, asymptomatic shocks uh, that really resulted from what might seem obscure kinds of things or trivial kinds of things—I uh, mean—I I just found that way of seeing these three major crises in recent times fascinating because it just shows us how we can get blindsided from things we never expect to get blindsided by.
1: That's right. It was. It was. I was so struck by that as well. That you know, you you think about 9/11, and it's 19 people on on four planes with box cutters, uh, a, a weapon that was invented in the Stone Age. And they were able to transform the world by this unleashing this war and terror, two wars in the Middle East, you know, the Arab Spring. You can you can trace back the enormous uh, extent of this, of the of all of this. And you wonder, you know, how did it you know, how did it elude us? Well, because it was 19 men <laughs> boarding planes with box cutters, um, you look at the global financial crisis, it's difficult to, for people to remember, but it really did start, it all started because of this obscure financial product called a credit default swap, which is a kind of insurance on a kind of mortgage. Uh, and it just ballooned and ballooned and ballooned till the size of that product became, four, I think $45 trillion, you know, larger than the, the global economy itself. And then of course the whole thing came crashing down. And you look at the pandemic, and it starts with a viral speck in a bat uh, somewhere in China, probably in in Wuhan, um, and look at what it's caused. And and this one, uh, Michael, is the largest. I think it's important to realize, even though we're living through it, and you can sometimes not have perspective, this is the largest thing we've been through in our lifetimes in two senses. One, it has caused the most complete... Uh, and most dramatic economic shutdown we have ever seen in our lives. But the second way is it really is universal. So if you think about the, the 9-11, I mean, if you were living, I knew lots of people in India, uh, you know, where I grew up, it had no effect on their lives, you know, businessmen, uh, uh, academics, journalists. It, it, was, it was something that happened. It, America had its, you know, engagements with the Middle East as a result of it, a little bit of security at airports, but that was it. Global financial crisis, we call it global, but it was really the Western banks that were all over leveraged. And, you know, Again, a businessman in India hardly felt it at all. This pandemic has affected every human being on the planet. Um, I think it's not an exaggeration to say that, that in some significant way, every person on the planet's life has been changed sub- substantially because of this pandemic.
0: Let me ask you just uh, right up front here, because we saw a debate in which uh, President Trump once again was talking about how great they've done and how well they've managed this, uh, all the ventilators and so forth uh, that he was boasting about. And uh, there are many who see his handling of this as a disaster and what may indeed fulfill your prophecy of his losing the election. I'm just wondering, uh, because you see so many things through international perspectives, how foreign countries view the job that Donald Trump is doing as president with respect to the pandemic?
1: Oh, the, the, First of all, there's, there's a, there is objective reality here. You know? uh, one, one is entitled to one's own opinions, but the, the facts are, are this. The United States has roughly 4% of the world's population. It has roughly 25% of the world's COVID cases. Uh, it has a death rate that is significantly higher than the best advanced industrial countries. There are some that have also done, done poorly, but here's the disjuncture. The United States spends more on, on healthcare than any country in the world. Uh, it has the greatest institutions devoted to public health in particular, the CDC, the FDA, the greatest universities, the greatest research labs, the greatest pharmaceutical companies. The fact that it is in the bottom, you know, third of the of the advanced industrial world in terms of its response is appalling. This is, you know, yes, there are some European countries that have done badly as well. But the United States should really have been at the top of the, of, the, of the list. And in fact, we have not. Part of the reason, in my view, is because we did have an initial failure that was, you know, complicated. We didn't quite see it coming uh, as we should have. And I don't blame President Trump for that entirely. I think there were others who also didn't see it. We didn't gear up properly. Uh, we, the CDC sent out the wrong test kits. So there were some early stumbles, but we never learned from it. We never learned from the failures because President Trump was is so narcissistic and so deter, you know uh, so uh, encapsulated in a kind of bubble mentality that he refused to admit he had done anything wrong. So if you look at our testing, even today, Michael, seven, eight months into the pandemic, we have among the worst text testing regimes in the advanced world. We have We have the longest lead times. Uh, you know, which is which essentially means the test is is worthless. And so forgive me, Fareed, no...
0: this is also ironic in light of the president. I keep talking, uh, continuing to talk about how much we test, and that's the reason the numbers are so high. I'm coming up on a quick break here, and I want to give out the number because I want to give people an opportunity to speak to you and to ask questions of you. And if you'd like to join us with Fareed Zakaria, Uh, whose new book is called 10 Lessons for a Post-Pandemic World. Let me take this opportunity to ask you uh, to join us. What have we learned so far from the pandemic and what lessons would you like to remain or emerge for the future? You can give us a call now and I invite you to do that. Our toll-free number is available to you. The number to call is 866-733-6786. That number, again, for your calls and your involvement in the program, 866-733-6786, or get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or email any questions you might have to forum at kqed.org. And again, Fareed Zakaria's new book is 10 Lessons for a Post-Pandemic World. We're now seeing uh, much in the pandemic way with Vice President Pence uh, and many in his uh, world, his cohort, uh, his advisors and so forth now coming down with the virus as well. And we'll talk about this and we'll talk about the book and much more. And we'll hear from you, I hope. Let us know your thoughts. I'm Michael Krasny. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking about the coronavirus pandemic and international and national news with Fareed Zakaria, host of Fareed Zakaria GPS on CNN and author of 10 Lessons for a Post-Pandemic World. And uh, Tweets and emails are already coming in. Let me give you at least a share of them. Uh, Noel tweets, the majority of voters are against Trump, but Electoral College is what counts, not to mention the inevitable lawsuits that will pile on before, during and after Election Day. And another tweet from Lottie who says what should remain after the pandemic science 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 I hope we really think about how we are going to teach science and math in a way that sparks interest and curiosity and Fried, let me just say something about your book here because I think in some ways it's really optimistic you've got your own I'm being a little facetious here your own decalogue of what's going to happen in 10 ways perhaps in a post-pandemic world and there's some tea leaf reading here but when I say there's optimism, I'm talking particularly about the notion that tribal identities and popular reshaping of the world uh, has uh, made us realize the importance uh, of competent government to a greater degree, even though we have all these autocracies that seem to be in populist movements uh, that are facing us. In other words, you're saying we're going to be much more moving toward government by quality rather than quantity.
1: Yeah, you know, Michael, part of it is, look, uh, it's temperamental. I'm, I'm an optimist by nature. But I do think that if you ask yourself, when do people change? When do companies change? When do governments change? It's when they confront difficulty, hard times, and really failure. Um, you, you really have to experience some kind of dislocation uh, to change. When things are going well, you know, people don't don't change. I mean, that's why you have phrases like, you know, you should fix the, the, the leaky roof when the sun is shining. Uh, it's, it's it's hard. We have gone through one of the biggest dislocations in history. And so my hope is that what will come out of this is some of the kinds of realizations that your, your listeners were talking about. You know, the importance of science, the importance of putting people who are experts in fields in charge, not just dealing with the pandemic. But look, we've had forest fires that have burned up 5 million square miles. The, that's the entire state of Massachusetts in flames. Um, and, it's in t- and it is largely a, resp- a consequence of global warming, which is a consequence of human activity. So there are all kinds of places where I think we can change, I, and I believe we will. And in the, the one you were referring to, a tribal identity, look, I think that you know, one of the things we will come to realize is the only way we're gonna get through these problems is by finding ways to cooperate. Uh, there is no purely American solution to climate change or to a global pandemic or to a space race or to you know cyber issues. These are all by nature global and the solution will have to be global.
0: Well, you say globalism is not dead, but the world is polarized. And when you talk about climate change, uh, you're talking about, uh, in your book at least, uh, about resilience and the importance of preparedness. Those kinds of things matter most and perhaps we will come to that realization as a result of this. Uh, there are consequences to plagues. And uh, you do a good job also of outlining a lot of the plagues that have preceded. Uh, uh, there's, the, the book really held my interest to a great degree because of the way you were able to weave in history and use literary sources as well, as well which always interests me. But you talk a lot also in the book about China and uh, just some of the things that you outline, China being the single largest source of global growth, uh, the number one trading nation and goods, uh, the world's largest manufacturer, all of those kinds of things, largest foreign exchange uh, reserves. Uh, I mean, all of that points to this battle, this kind of Manichean battle, as some would see it, between the United States and China, which could move into a Cold War, maybe is already there, uh, but also uh, some are saying that China's gearing up, maybe even for a hot war. Your thoughts?
1: Well, I think it's a very, you know it is one of the greatest consequences of COVID, that we are having an acceleration of the tendencies and the tensions surrounding this. The first acceleration is, of course, that we are now in a bipolar world. We haven't been in one for a long time, but it really is true, as you outlined, uh, China is now the second most powerful country in the world. Uh, And look at today, every country in the world, literally every country in the world is in a recession or a depression. China is growing at 5% this quarter. China is back booming um, and it's because they handle the virus highly effectively, despite the fact that it originated there. So they have managed this process in a way that accelerates their own power. Now, we can view this as a rerun of the 1950s if, if we wanted to. Um, but we'd have to realize we are in a much, much more dangerous situation, because the Soviet Union was a marginal player economically and technologically in the world. It did well in space. But other than that, it really was a a second second rank power, maybe even a third rank power. China is a pure competitor of the United States. Of the 500 fastest computers in the world, 250 are in China, which is twice as many as are in the United States. When you look at the cutting edge of technology in almost any field at this point, from quantum computing to artificial intelligence to green technology, China is at least as, as uh, 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 you know, at least competitive with the United States. Often, it's ahead. And if you think about the interconnections that we are we are experiencing as a world, at the height of the Cold War, the United States and the Soviet Union had two billion dollars of trade every year. Today, the United States and China have $2 billion worth of trade every day. So you try to unwind this, and you tr- and we end up in a world of, a, of, of competition and cutthroat competition with an arms race and a space race and a cyber race and artificial intelligence races. We'd be looking at a very different world, a much more shrunken world, and much less commerce, much less contact, Um, And a world in which everyone would have to choose, as you describe it as a Manichean world. I I think it's a very unfortunate outcome, and we should at least be trying our hardest to find ways to cooperate in some areas and compete in others. That's the challenge we face, which is, can we find a way to live with another power as dynamic, as large as the United States? We've never had to do that before. Well, you are optimistic,
0: I think it's safe to say once again, when you talk about an international uh, global system that actually gives voice, possibly greater voice to all countries and will inevitably, perhaps one hopes, lead to even more democratization. That's taking a rather sanguine view of everything. And uh, I certainly would share the hope that that is indeed the case. But then you also talk about we heard a cut from you earlier uh, about how the pandemic has created much greater inequity than we ever could have imagined.
1: Yeah, that is, what, that is perhaps the saddest consequence of COVID um, is that it has produced greater inequality uh, really quite on a quite significant scale everywhere. So greater inequality between the, from among the richest nations in the world and the poorest, among rich people and poor people, among big companies and small companies. And you can see it, right? I mean, the United States, uh, Germany, Japan, for all their problems, they can borrow money at will. They can print money. They can they can provide you know the kind of unemployment insurance and PPP all those things are possible. Those are not possible for the poor countries in the world. They don't have the money. They can't borrow. If they borrow, they have to borrow in a, in a currency they don't control. Or think about you know uh, the difference within a country. Look, those of us who continue to be able to work digitally need to always remind ourselves that there's about thirty to forty percent of the country whose lives have been utterly devastated the people who work in restaurants and hotels and shopping malls and cruise ships on theme parks work has just disappeared for those people so for you and me michael this is a bit of an inconvenience it's a little weird we've got you know a lot of the zoom stuff but that is a very high quality problem compared to the, the you know the lives of people who have just been completely upended by the disappearance of work on a scale that i I don't think even happened during the Great Depression.
0: If you've just joined us, our guest is Fareed Zakaria. He is a host of Fareed Zakaria GPS on CNN and author of 10 Lessons for a Post-Pandemic World. Uh, Holly writes to us, the root causes of the pandemic are poverty and destruction of nature. If we can't Maintain a healthy balance with the natural world of which we are an integral part. We will keep being exposed to viruses and other diseases that we have never been exposed to before. And unfortunately, if we even eradicate this one, there may be new outbreaks of other diseases almost certain to occur in the future as well. I'm trying to balance the optimist with uh, some of the grimness uh, uh, that Joe Biden was just talking about yesterday. Let me bring a caller on here. Frank from Mill Valley joins us. Frank, welcome. Good morning, Michael. Good morning, Mr. Zakaria. Um, I'd like to challenge your basic thesis that it was a blindsided uh, problem, particularly COVID, but even going back to the recession. Um, both, in both instances, I would suggest that we had mechanisms in place that the government had seen, foreseen the possibility of this. Uh, and in COVID in particular, there were uh, extensive wargaming going on and the setting up of, of processes to deal with a new pandemic, which the current administration dismantled because of ideological reasons. And so I I don't accept the idea that it was, um, it came out of the blue, but rather um, the government uh, turned its back on its own advice. And so could you speak to those issues, please? Well, we were hit hard by it, uh, harder than we ever thought. But Frank's right in a way, Fareed, isn't he? I mean, Bill Gates uh, and uh, Larry Brilliant, so many people have been warning us about this.
1: Uh, yeah, look, I, I mean, I don't mean to toot my own horn, but uh, three years before the pandemic, I devoted a whole uh, segment of my program to essentially, I mean, I, I, I hate to say it, but I predicted exactly what happened. The only thing I got wrong was I said it would probably come out of Africa and it came out of China. But it was exactly otherwise it fo- followed the script that we laid out on on, uh, on my television show uh, three years before it happened. And the reason I did that segment, and it relates exactly to the... Co- the caller's point is that Donald Trump was cutting uh, public health uh, funding and h- public health preparedness. So I entirely—I don't think we disagree that much. I entirely agree that this administration bears a lot of the burden for uh, the the uh, inept and uh, dysfunctional U.S. response. The point I was making is, right at the start, there was a certain amount of confusion. You will remember the WHO wasn't sure that this was. A really virulent pandemic. Uh, people like uh, Tony Fauci were not sure, and they, you know, they were going about saying, "No, go about your business as usual." So what I meant is, if you look at the countries that did really well, they acted at actually at that point. They took no chances. But I'm saying even after that, once it hit, the Trump administration was not able to even, you know, by late March, by early April, by late April, uh, reverse course and say, "Okay, we screwed up." here's what we now need to do. And if we had done that even that late, um, you would have had, I don't know, I'm not gonna put a number on it, but you would have had tens of thousands fewer deaths because we could have at that point ramped up a mass testing and tracing system. We could have put in a national mask mandate. You know, So yes, you're right that there was all kinds of things that we could have done early on. But I, my point is even if you accept that for whatever reason we screwed up in February, March, um, Look, we're still screwing up now. We still do not have a national mask mandate. We still do not have a mass testing and tracing, which would all help if we did it. If we started tomorrow and put it in place in in a couple of weeks, it would help even now.
0: Well, I'm getting a number of comments coming in really asking about can we unify? I'll give you a sample of what I'm talking about here. Julie writes, do you think our country, given its decentralized power structure across the states, will ever be able to unite for a common cause, i.e. stopping the spread of the virus, regardless of who becomes president? And Ron writes, Thank you to your guests for putting so succinctly what I have been thinking about regarding this pandemic. I've always been a strong believer in the ingenuity of America and the American people. The response to this pandemic, even many months into now, has caused me to question our competence and our ability for collective action. I'm disappointed and disillusioned. It's a big question, and it's one that looms over any election and continues particularly to loom over this one. Your thoughts?
1: Those are great, great points and great questions. So the way I think about it, America has always been this odd beast, which is that it has enormous ingenuity out there in the private sector, in society, enormous dynamism. But in the public sector, that has always been a more complicated issue because we're fundamentally anti-statist. We're fundamentally highly individualistic. And so it has always required a kind of heroics to get American government to function at the scale and, and the level it needs to, you know, Franklin Roosevelt was able to do it because he really was a kind of political genius. Lyndon Johnson was able to do it for similar reasons. Even Eisenhower is, in his own way, you know, he built the interstate highway system by saying, if the Soviets were to invade America, you'd need to be able to move tanks from across the coast to coast, and so let's have a highway system. Um, so you you know, it takes a lot of energy and determination to do it, and So the first point I'd make is that's part of what I mean about the failure of the Trump administration. I don't pretend it's easy. It's very hard. But if you have a president and an administration that is focused, energetic, you can corral the various agencies in Washington. You can corral the states and the localities. We have done it. You know, this is not beyond the, the realm of the possible, but it's hard and you can't be somebody who doesn't believe in government and who believes that government is just issuing tweets and who believes as Steve Bannon dis- said of the Trump revolution, our goal is the deconstruction of the administrative state. I mean, if you think government is basically some deep state plotting against you, obviously it's not gonna function very well when you're trying to lead it through a pandemic. And then there's a final point I'd make, which is politically we are so divided that the question you, that your listeners are asking is in some ways not just a technical one about can we kind of make all of government work? It's can we make the country come together? We're the only country where the mask has become a political statement. And that's the saddest part about where we are right now.
0: Well, since you mentioned uh, deep state, I'm wondering what your thoughts are about something else, uh, particularly in light of the fact that a lot of damage can be done, as many have pointed out, uh, even if Biden wins uh, by Donald Trump, uh, especially during the lame duck period that he will be holding down the presidency. There was an executive order. uh, I'm talking about Schedule F, which I'm sure you're familiar with, which uh, essentially can allow for the firing of tens of thousands of workers in civil service. That's managers, that's lawyers, uh, that's economists. uh, It certainly includes scientists as well. And it would allow the government uh, under at least this president to not only fire whomever he please, but hire whomever he please. In other words, this is behind this idea that you need to replace and somehow supplant what has been regarded as the deep state. And it's something that could be brought to fruition here.
1: You're absolutely right. It's one of these under the radar uh, things that Trump is doing. And I think it's important to remember here that Trump, it's not just Trump. I, I, I think Trump is a weird anomaly in American politics, but there has been for 40 years a strain within the Republican Party that has said the federal government is bad. The federal government is evil. Federal bureaucrats are all liberals. Our goal is to in some way strip them of power, limit their authority uh, you know, as I said with the Bannon, deconstruct this administrative state, um, and I think it's very dangerous because the United States actually has a very small state. Uh, it you know compared to other uh, countries, and to do put this much pressure on it. There's so much defunding of it has already happened, and now to have what you're describing, which is this threat on the basis on the grounds of poor poor performance, um, you could you could end up uh, creating a kind of permanently crippled dysfunctional state at a time when we are facing all these challenges from climate change to pandemics to cyber warfare and and you know it's it, it's likely to make us go through the 21st century with kind of one hand tied behind our backs now as with everything trump does it's very poorly thought through and very poorly uh, executed so There's a good possibility that it's illegal. Um, It's a good possibility the courts will uh, will shut it down or transform it. Uh, It's a good possibility they won't be able to use it as effectively as they want it. Um, So with Trump, you're always hoping that when he's particularly uh, malicious, he he also turns out to be incompetent.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We'll... uh go to a quick break on that note and again reminding you that we're talking about the coronavirus pandemic and international national news with Fareed Zakaria, who is not only the host of uh, Fareed Zakaria GPS on CNN, but also the author of a new book called 10 Lessons for a Post-Pandemic World. And we will hear from more of you. In fact, uh, Fareed, I want to talk with you about something that doesn't get a whole lot of attention uh, when we come back, uh, Nigeria. But we'll get some more calls as well. And uh, you're listening to Forum on KQED Public Radio. I'm Michael Krasny. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Our guest is Fareed Zakaria, and we're asking you, our listeners, what have we learned so far from the pandemic, and what lessons would you like to remain or emerge for the future? You can give us a call at our toll-free number, 866-733-6786. Again, join us at 866-733-6786, or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or email us, forum at kqed.org. Let's bring Charles on. Charles, good morning. Welcome. Good morning. Happy to be here. So my question my question to Fareed is, uh, as a recent college graduate living in San Francisco, uh, where it's not the cheapest place to live, uh, what advice and what lesson would you say uh, is the most important that we could take away from the current circumstances we
1: find ourselves in?
0: It's a big question, Charles. Thank you for it. We'll go to your wisdom on this, Fareed.
1: Um, that is a big question. I, I would say a few things. The first is it's pretty obvious. Um, the digital economy has essentially replaced the real economy. And so just make sure whatever you do uh, is, you know, exists on that digital plane. It doesn't mean it has to be computer coding, but just think about, you know, in a world where digital is everything, where digital is the way you can multiply, maximize, enhance The kind of business or work you do uh those those jobs are going to be much more uh, highly paid they're going to be much more valuable um and that was again one of these classic cases where COVID has just accelerated and intensified a trend that already existed so i would say that's number one can i quote you you say
0: actually in your book you say digital life is life
1: (laughs) that's right it's at this point you know we are we are we are getting to and, and 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 it takes strange forms and will take stranger forms than than we realize. So one of the things digital life has done is it will transform the restaurant business. And I believe what you will end up with is a whole number of places that are actually more geared just toward delivery. And, you know, have, because they will take advantage of all the the, the realities of digital in a way that uh, restaurants were, you know, they were not, they were kind of, uh, they were they were nibbling around the edges. And now you're going to have places that fully jump into that world and then you'll have ones that are i don't uh, think at all uh, uh, you know normal restaurants will go away but there will be a, and my guess is what you to stay as a normal restaurant you will have to be doing something special you'll have to really have a special atmosphere or you'll have to have really high high-end food or you know you just a routine generic restaurant uh, i my own view is that the you know, the, the, those kind of delivery services like Chopped and, and uh, you know, all those salad places, all that stuff in Chipotle, those will take over. So you, even in something that doesn't seem as affected, it is going to be affected. Um, the one thing I tell you is you're living in San Francisco. Don't worry about it. Find a way to get go- a good deal on rent. Cities are not going anywhere. Um, if cities have been able to survive the bubonic plague and they've been av- able to survive yellow fever and typhoid and cholera outbreaks, uh, they will survive this one. If, they, if you look at the Spanish influenza, so cities and bars and restaurants were all back. In fact, the 1920s was the jazz age. And by the way, that at that point, we had prohibition in, in America and you still had thousands of what they call speakeasies. In the in New York in the 1920s. Yeah, forgive me. That's so, one of the uh, most
0: uh, optimistic things about your book is that you really <laughs> seem to have complete confidence in cities re-emerging. And uh, by the way, I learned from you, and thank you for this. The Spanish flu had very little to do with emerging from Spain. It had to do with the fact that Spain really was the center of most of the news reports and most of the journalism at the time, where the flu was. Running. That's right.
1: Spain was not a, was a non-combatant in World War One. So unlike all the other places where the Spanish flu was taking place, including the United States, there was censorship and they didn't want uh, reports of people, you know, all all kinds of people suddenly dying of mysterious causes. So that was all censored. Spain was the one place where it wasn't censored. So everyone thought, my God, this stuff is all happening in Spain. It's the Spanish flu.
0: I thought I would ask you uh, also, I had mentioned before I went to that last break uh, about Nigeria, because there's not enough focus on what's been going on there. And a lot has been going on there. And I wanted to get your take. Uh, uh, President Buhari has had essentially a number of uh, protesters shot and killed by soldiers. The SARS group, the special uh, anti-robbery squad, which has been condemned by Amnesty International uh, for torture and killings, uh, has been running pretty rampant. And just Friday in Lagos, the state government announced uh, some prosecutions and over the weekend, they're talking about, uh, well, looking into unrest or doing something. Is there gonna be any positive movement you think in that country?
1: Look, I think it's, it's, it's certainly positive movement. How, how large it will be and how lasting it'll be is the question. But I think it's a wonderful uh, point to raise, Michael, because it reminds us how connected we are. I think that a lot of what is happening in Nigeria is a result of the Black Lives Matter protests and some of the associate protests around police brutality. So what, what is happening in Nigeria, for those who don't know, is that you have this, the squad called SARS, the special anti-robbery squad uh, that, ha- that runs rampant. It's highly corrupt, very abusive, uh, pays no attention to human rights when it, prosec- when, it when it goes after people. And Nigerians, I believe, in part inspired by what has been happening in America, have started to post videos, YouTube videos. And there's this huge national movement that has come up. And President Buhari has not promised to disband the squad, but they're now asking for more. They're more asking for you know, justice and, and, and a kind of uh, uncovering of what happened. I think one of the dangers of, of COVID and the pandemic is that governments have taken on a lot of power. And it's important for citizens Uh, whether it is in America or in Nigeria or in India, to recognize that this is a great danger. You could have the consolidation of greater and greater police powers under the guise of fighting a pandemic, under the guise of needing to maintain order. And so this is a very heartening development. Nigerian politics is such that, you know, I'm not going to make any bets that this is going to last or it's going to be deep and lasting, but, you know, watching it with a lot of hope.
0: Do you have hope when it comes to, well, Sudan now, along with the Arab Emirates and Bahrain, actually normalizing relations with Israel?
1: Uh, Yeah, you know, I think this is one area where you have to give Trump uh, credit for being kind of counterconventional in the way he thinks about things. I've been writing for some years now that one of the mistakes we make about the Middle East is we think that the Palestinian problem is at the heart of the Middle East. But one of the things that I came to realize really after 9-11 was that that wasn't true for most of the Middle East, that the Middle East was consumed by completely different uh, rages. And the main one was the divide between the the Sunnis and the Shia, this great sectarian divide in Islam, uh, which, which also maps onto the division between the Persians, who are mostly Shia, and the uh, Arabs, who are mostly Sunni. And that that was the great divide in the Arab world. In a way, what Trump did was he, he said, okay, if that's true, then you can you can see that Israel has more in common with the moderate Sunni states, the Gulf states, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, uh, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, uh, than it does with Egypt and Iraq and such. And so, Because all those countries, Israel, the UAE, uh, Saudi Arabia, they are worried about Iran. And so they are in a tacit alliance. Let's try to make that tacit alliance a real alliance. And in a way, that's what's happened.
0: And we'll bring uh, another caller on with us. Farhad joins us next. Farhad, welcome to the program. Good morning.
1: Good morning. Thank you. Thank you, Michael, for having me. So, Mr. Dekeya, thank you for, for your time today and discussing the issues. So, but I, but I felt that you almost vindicated, President Trump, that he did not fail overcoming pandemic in the United States, but rather others are responsible for it. My question is, if he's not so responsible, which he has as the authoritarian leader controlling all the concerned branches of government for out-of-control pandemic in the United States, then who others are? And also, what do you think, if Biden elected, will he be able to to be to resolve the pandemic issue, at least in the United States.
0: Uh, a couple of questions from Farad, and thank you for those, Farad. Uh, yeah, I think he's looking for culpability for the pandemic. Uh, Trump keeps blaming China, and it certainly did originate there. But uh, what are your thoughts on that, particularly in the ongoing handling of it?
1: Sure, it's a good question. You know, if I mean, and and I hope I made clear. I, look, I think Trump has handled it very poorly, but I think it's a broader failure than that. The CDC sent out bad kits, faulty kits. That was probably the single biggest problem in the initial response. And that was just a mistake of the CDC's. I don't think uh, Trump had much to do with it. A lot of the governors uh, mishandled. Remember, power in America is is held enormously vested in, in states, and a lot of the governors have handled it very poorly. You still have the spikes that are taking place in Midwestern states. Uh, and in in well in mountain states are happening because governors are not enforcing mask mandates. They are not doing contact tracing. Uh, you know, if, if you if you look at New York, a place where it started out badly, uh, but Governor Cuomo learned a lot, and now New York has one of the lowest uh, positivity rates in the country. So you know, the, the, there's a, there's a lot of blame to go around. But I certainly think as the as the you know as the chief executive of the country. Uh, Trump naturally bears most responsibility because if he had taken it on as a project and if he had tried to coordinate with the government, state governments and local governments, it would have been very different. But I, I don't want it to let us all off the hook because I think that this is a really important moment for America um, to to think about how to make real deep systemic change in the country uh, in terms of the, the nature of our government, the quality of the government, the amount of, you know, the the funding for it, the independence it gets. We need to really rethink a lot of issues. And it, we need to, you know, it's too easy just to blame Trump. There was a broader systemic failure as well.
0: Well, the caller, Farhad, also was asking whether you thought that uh, Vice President Biden, former Vice President Biden, has some kind of solution and way of dealing with the pandemic. Uh, President Trump says you're just essentially plagiarizing what we've done. That is his administration. No
1: idea. Yeah, I think Biden does have. Look, what needs to be done is pretty, is pretty clear at this point. It wasn't maybe as clear right, right away, but it's absolutely clear now. We need a much better mass testing and tracing system in place. We need much stronger social distancing guidelines. Uh, there, as Biden says correctly, the only way to open up the economy is with those things, because otherwise you end up having to do the blunt instrument of a lockdown. If you don't want a lockdown, what you need are, really clear uh, guidelines, you know, in terms of masks, in terms of no large gatherings, uh, you know, uh, nothing in in, uh, poorly uh, ventilated enclosed spaces like bars or churches, you know, these are places you have to worry about carefully. Um, You you protect the vulnerable and the elderly. Um, If you do all those things, you can, you know, you can let the rest of life uh, go, go, go on as normal. And everything Biden has said suggests that that's what he wants to do. Now, it is important to point out, a lot of this is execution. So I think Biden is saying the right things. And I am hopeful that because he believes in government and he has competent people around him, he will be able to execute. Um, And that's certainly the bet I'm going to make. Um, But, you know, it's going to be hard. And I think it's important to understand we need to get better at government than we have been for a long time.
0: Again, we're talking with Fareed Zakaria. His new book is 10 Lessons for a Post-Pandemic World. And Amy joins us. Amy, welcome. You're on the air. Yes, um, thank you, gentlemen, so much for this intelligent discussion. Farid, I'd like to know your thoughts. There's so much focus and concentration on masking and prevention of the infection, which is important. But there's a second part that's being completely ignored. There's no discussion or education on comorbidities like heart disease, diabetes, and obesity. They make this virus significantly more serious and fatal. Their lifestyle diseases, completely preventable and reversible with whole food plant-based nutrition. Not only does whole based nutrition prevent and reverse these chronic illnesses, but they're the leading causes of death, even more deaths than COVID-19. And eliminating animal agriculture would prevent the creation of these pandemics in the first place. So I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. Why
1: are we not educating the public more?
0: We need more public education there, Fareed, you think?
1: Yes, I, I I entirely agree. I mean, I think whether or not you go as far as the call over did in terms of eliminating animal uh, agriculture and things, what I would say is this: there is no question we have a massive problem of obesity in this country. We don't like to talk about it, and we don't like to you know to point it out as such. But it is a disease multiplier. It is the it is the you know it is the accelerant of all kinds of other diseases. Um, it is. I don't want to say easily preventable, but it is preventable. Um, we need to focus much more on it. And the nature of our diet uh, is, you know, it's bad at uh, many, many levels by the, you know, junk food, overly fatty food, too much sugar. Um, but there is also uh, way too much animal protein. Uh, I think nutritionists would disagree as to whether or not it means you need to eliminate animal protein or you need to cut it down. Everybody would agree. We're in the wrong space now, and we need to get to a place where we have more plant-based protein and less animal-based uh, protein. And animal agriculture is, you know, it's pretty sordid. I mean, the way the factory farming is done in this country is an invitation for another pandemic. These thousands of animals herded together in unsanitary conditions, viruses hopping from animal to animal and gaining strength so, it's all, it's uh, you're absolutely right. And one of the reasons we don't talk about it enough is what we have in this country is a healthcare system that is focused mostly on uh, tackling people after they get sick rather than prevention. Prevention mm-hmm. is the single most important way you can, you can stop sick illnesses, and we do the opposite.
0: Fareed, we promised you we'd let you go by 955 our time, and uh, we've hit that mark, but it's really always good to have you with us, and I appreciate and grateful for your time. Thank you, and again, congratulations on the book.
1: Thank you so much, Michael. It's always a pleasure to talk to you.
0: Again, Fareed Zakaria's new book is called 10 Lessons for a Post-Pandemic World. Meanwhile, uh, we can hear from another caller here, or actually, let me read some emails that are coming in in the time we have remaining. uh, Leslie writes, uh, uh, I, I feel you're avoiding a key problem, that of an obvious and ever-strengthening culture divide in America. The arrogance of the professional and academic class has, in my opinion, delivered us a truly destructive president. Trump may be an anomaly, but the cultural divide is not, and it's not going away. And how can this be addressed? We had to say goodbye to Fareed, but some of you may want to contemplate that. And uh, uh, let's get another caller on here. Mark joins us. Mark, hi.
1: Hi. I just want to comment that medical journals are saying 20 to 40 percent of post-COVID survivors are going to have health care issues that will cost the economy and the workforce a lot. And I just don't see it being addressed.
0: Yeah, well, thank you for that. That's, a, again, a very sobering thought and one that needs to be taken into consideration in a profound way. And I appreciate hearing from you, Mark. Uh, I also hear from Susan, who says, uh, as a child psychologist, I see some of the roots of this tribalism in our country as a desperate need to belong and not to be excluded. People are willing to believe and do outrageous things just to feel part of something. And thank you, Susan, for that. Uh, Shastri wanted to uh, find out what Fareed's thoughts were on how the West can stand up to China without making the current situation even worse than it already is. A good question. And sorry we had to say goodbye to Fareed Shastri, but we will perhaps take that up with him the next time uh, he graces our airwaves and joins us on the program. And uh, I want to thank you all for joining us for this hour and remind you that we have another hour up ahead with me and Kim and also remind you, you can always let us know what you think about what you hear on forum or would like to hear on forum by simply emailing us forum at kqed.org. We're going to have another uh, fascinating guest booked on Wednesday. Robert Putnam will joining, be joining us. Uh, he's scheduled to be on with us. Some of you know his work from bowling alone and Apropos of what we've been talking about here, uh, Putnam, who's a Harvard professor of many years, uh, has written a book now about how we can become more unified. And he looks at history as a way of at least uh, gauging how the United States at one point was certainly much more unified than it is today and how it can sort of retrack itself and get the kind of unity that we all feel is necessary to have these United States be united. Again, appreciate very much your being with us this hour of Forum and remind you that Mina Kim and Another Hour Forum is up ahead. Thank you for being with us. And uh, for all of us here at KQED Public Radio, please take care of yourselves and take care of those who you care about and take care of each other and stay safe. I'm Michael Krasny.